0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Just you all had a happy Thanksgiving. We had one as well in Chicago. The only thing I brought home was a cold, though, so sorry for uh, today. My voice is a little bit off. I made it to the first service without coughing, so we're going to pray that happens again here. Also, I feel like I have a softball somewhere in the back of my head or front of my head or all through my head, so uh, like I'm in a fog. So if anything doesn't make sense today, assume it's that. Normally, I can't give you that excuse. If it doesn't make sense, it's just because I don't make sense. But today, I might actually have an excuse. We're going to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look at verse 16. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Father, we come now and we do ask your blessing on our time and your word this morning. Uh, Spirit, take my feeble words and use it to convict us of sin and to remind us of the true source of victory in the battles that we face. I pray that we will walk out of here today reminded of our dependence on you and the victory that we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we saw last time, two weeks ago here, the Christian life is a battle. And within each of us, there are two forces that are just constantly fighting against one another, the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh, of course, is that sinful part of us that neither wants to nor even can uh, submit to God. The, The flesh wants to sin. The flesh wants to disobey. The flesh wants to displease God. And notice that I worded all of those statements in an active voice because the flesh is not a passive thing. It actively wants to sin against God every chance that it gets. That's why Paul can say with such certainty uh, in Romans 7, for example, that I, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. It's why he can also say with such certainty in Romans chapter 3 that as he looks out across this, the whole uh, realm of humanity that there is no one who does good, not even one person. Uh, there's nothing good in our flesh. It lives constantly in a state of active opposition to God. And for every unbeliever around us, you know, this is all they have, no matter how good they might look on the outside, no matter you know, how we might look at their actions and, and perceive them as perhaps being good from our human perspective. God looks at all of those things, and he, he, he sees the true motives of the heart. He sees why they do what they do, and he declares all of them to be sin to be works of the flesh, and he rejects them accordingly. But for the believer, God gives us the spirit of his Son to dwell within us, and that spirit fights against the flesh. This is why Paul tells us here in verse 16 to walk by the Spirit, because it's only as we walk by the Spirit that we are able to say no to those desires of the flesh. You see, those things are opposed to one another verse 17. One is against the other. Each fights the other actively. And by every indication within the New Testament, this is the normal experience of the Christian life, that we are going to live in a constant state of internal battle until we finally see Jesus face to face. So we're not talking here about one and done skirmishes, where you just deal with something one time, it'll be over and you'll never have to deal with it again. We're talking about a campaign a long term war between the flesh and the spirit. And something I didn't say about this last time when we were together, but I'll add now, is that that war isn't between us and, or the spirit and Satan, like within us. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, and I'm not really picking on their, their verbiage necessarily, but I am a little, they'll say, you know, well, I feel like you know, Satan's really tempting me right now to do whatever well, again, I'm not trying to pick necessarily on their language. I hear that. I understand it. I do recognize that we wrestle against, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness and high places, all those things. But when I hear that, there's a part of me that almost wants to respond, mm, I seriously doubt that. I get that Satan is real. Demons are real, and they are active in this world. But, but it's just that, well, first, I have four things. If you're a believer, uh, I would remind you that Satan and demons have no power over you. There's nothing in the New Testament that would indicate that. Second, if you're a believer, I see no uh, indication in the New Testament that, that Satan or demons can know your thoughts or put desires or, or longings or thoughts into your own mind that would cause you to be tempted. There's no indication of that anywhere that I can see. Third, I often think when people say that, why would Satan or any demon care about any of us? You know? There's like 7 billion people on the planet. Are we really that important? Like, Why would they even look at us or know about us or care about us? But fourth and most of the point, if you're being tempted by something, I would assume first and foremost that the thing you're being tempted by is your own flesh, that the enemy is really within, not so much without so when you're struggling with something, my suggestion, suggestion to you is to assume that it's your flesh, that you're feeling that war within, and that war within is going to continue until you are freed from this body of death. Now, none of that is meant to be discouraging, not by me, not by Paul. He ends verse 17 here by pointing out that the spirit is stronger than the flesh and is able to keep us from doing the sinful things that we most naturally want to do because of the cross, because Jesus has already died. He has won the victory against our flesh. He's won the victory against sin, and so the the flesh is a defeated foe. And, And we will experience that victory as we, every moment of every day, live our lives in such a manner that the person and truth of Jesus is exalted in us. Okay? That's walking by the Spirit as I have defined it in sermons past. This keeps us dependent on Christ, if you think about it, till the very end, because there will never come a moment where we don't need him. We needed him for salvation. We'll need him for sanctification. We'll need him all the way until we see him face to face. Everything we have will be by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is what we've seen so far. Now, having laid out the battle for us, Paul now turns to these two opposing forces and clarifies for us what these forces look like just to make sure it's clear. You see him begin to set this up here in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And you can translate this word evident here in Greek as, as being widely and well-known. Okay, as widely and well-known. In other words, think about the sun rising in the east. That is a truth that is widely and well known. It doesn't matter where I go in this world, what country I'm in, what culture, society, continent I'm on. Everybody recognizes that the sun rises in the east. That is evident. It is widely and well known. Well, he says the works of the flesh are also evident. They are widely and well known. Which means that we're not talking about here um, some kind of subjective morality. We're not talking about our personal standards about this or that, which you know over which we might disagree. We're not talking about socially agreed-upon faux pas where one society thinks something's bad and another society may not, and both could be right. We're talking about some core sins here, things that are sinful no matter where you are, what culture you're in, what language you speak, what time of history you have lived in. These are the, some core things. These works of the flesh are widely and well-known, and here they are, sexual immorality, Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, let me make three general observations about these sins here to begin with. First, my guess is that as I read this list or as you listen to it, you will likely without even thinking about what you're doing really, begin to somehow rank or order these sins in some manner or form. Like you'll see some of them as being worse than other ones just automatically and other ones being less than, than some of the other ones. Um, I'm gonna ask you, to the best of your ability this morning, to not do that. Try not to rank these sins for the next 30 minutes or so. I'll address this again. Just try to view them for the moment as being all equally works of the flesh. Second, and as I had pointed out previously, remember that Paul is not here attempting to give us an exhaustive list of everything that is classified as a work of the flesh. Right? It's just, it's just not. It's not long enough for it to be that right there. And that's pretty obvious, I think, because you see some of the big things that are missing. Like, he doesn't mention murder. I would assume murder is a work of the flesh. It's not in the list. He doesn't mention lying. That's, you know, I would think obvious it's not in the list. And I think it's also obvious because he ends the list by saying, and things like these, meaning there's more. He could keep going, but for brevity's sake, he's going to kind of pull it in. So this is not an exhaustive list. It is a representative list. Third, since it is a representative list, we have to ask ourselves the question, and we did this a few weeks ago, but for those who weren't here, I'll do it again. Why did Paul include the various sins that he chose to include here? If this is just a representative list of the works of the flesh, why, the, why these? And the answer I gave you a few weeks ago was that I think these may be the specific things that were a problem in the Church of Galatia. In fact, I'm just guessing on that. I don't know it, but I'm just it seems to make sense. The context of our passage is people using their freedom that they have in Christ as being an opportunity for the flesh. So these people are going out now and they're sinning apparently because there's no longer a, a Mosaic law that says, hey, you can't do this anymore. So they're like, hey, there's no law that says I can't do this. I might as well go do it and have some fun. And, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. Freedom from the law does not equal freedom from sin. You have to understand that. It doesn't. The works of the flesh are still sinful, regardless of whether or not there's a law that tells you they're sinful. So here are a few examples. So I I suspect that the list he gives them here is somehow related back to the specific things that are going on in the context of Galatia, and he's trying to help them understand that they still should not be doing some of these things. Now, having made those observations, let's just walk through this list. And to do so, I'm going to give them to us under four main categories of sins, just to kind of help us organize these things in our own mind. First, he lists some sexually related sins. This would be sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Uh, The Greek word here translated as sexual immorality is the word pornea, from which we get the word pornography. But as you think about that word, don't think of that topic as being the only thing in view here in Greek. That word is very broad and could refer to any type of sexual sin. Okay? So, for example, you don't see fornication in the list here. That's sex before or outside of marriage. That's covered by this word. Uh, you don't see adultery in this list. Sex with someone to whom you're not married while you're married. Again, that's, in co- that's covered by this particular word. So, so, basically, anything else that you can possibly think of as being a sexually related sinful act would fall under this word. The word impurity here means uncleanness and probably refers to some of the more debased sexual sins, and I'll just leave it at that. And then sensuality is an interesting addition to this group because it doesn't refer so much to the act of sexual sin itself as it does to the manner of life that leads one to that point. So, you know, this is the guy who who sort of orders his entire life around trying to get the next conquest. So how he dresses, how he talks to people, how he spends his money, where he goes, you know, who he interacts with and why. All of that for the purpose of immorality. It's this whole lifestyle is kind of built to that end. Uh, this is the woman who, who presents herself as a sexual object, how she dresses, how she interacts with men. You get the idea. So, so sensuality here is about the manner of life that leads one to sexual immorality. The two go together and they're lumped together here in this section. Uh, second, he lists worship-related sins, idolatry and sorcery. Um, idolatry is the worship of something before God. And that does not have to be, by the way, a little idol sitting in a temple somewhere. Anything that we place before God becomes an idol to us. So that's a pretty simple and, I think, uh, easy to understand one. Sorcery in Paul's context was a form of demonic religious practice. But before you get you know, too enamored with the idea of someone being a sorcerer and you're picturing like Dumbledore or Harry Potter running around, something like that, you know, it's interesting that the Greek word here is pharmakeia. Anytime you see the word sorcery in the New Testament, it's pharmakeia almost every time, I think and you know that's where we get the word pharmacy these are people probably who were using hallucinogens and drugs to make people see and hear or do all kinds of crazy things so you know whatever these people were viewed as having godlike abilities and so it still falls under the worship related category third he lists relationally related sins uh, eight of them in all this is by far the biggest category Uh, Many of these words are synonyms, and the nuances between them are so minor that it would be kind of pointless for me to walk through them one by one. Given the context of Galatians, I think we can guess why he emphasizes these sins so much, because you've got these false teachers who have caused all these divisions, and there's fighting going on now within the church because of people's actions and choices and misunderstandings, and so it must have been bad. And all of these issues here must have been serious, and so it's like Paul throws every word in the dictionary at them for this one right here. He wants to make sure it's clear. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy. All of these relationally related sins are clearly works of the flesh. And then finally, he lists alcohol-related sins very specifically. Interesting. Drunkenness and orgies. Drunkenness you get. That's just being controlled by, by alcohol. But the Greek word for orgies here, though, it doesn't mean exactly what that word means in English. In English, we think of that as being another type of sexual sin, and so it looks a little out of place coming at the end here. But in reality, the word simply refers to a drunken party that leads to other sins. Okay, it doesn't have to be sexual. It could be anything at all, really. It's a drunken party that leads to other kinds of sins. And so if you like to write notes in your Bible... Um, Remember, our translators are not inspired. Our text is inspired, but our translators are not inspired. I would cross out that word, and I'd put the word partying, because that actually is probably a better word. The old word here, by the way, in old translations was carousing. But nobody talks about carousing anymore. It's like a bunch of frat guys, like, we're going to go carousing this weekend. You know, nobody says that. Partying would work and be the same basic idea. Now, stop for a moment and just look down at your text and look through this list of sins again now that you have a little bit more information to kind of guide your thoughts. First, isn't it amazing how some things never change? <laughs> you know, that's the old saying, the more things change, the more things stay the same. I mean, I think we have a tendency to look back to the past and assume that, you know, things were better back in the good old days. You know, long time ago, things were a lot more moral and people were a lot... Uh, a lot better than they are today. This is the worst that's ever been. Um, No, (laughs) that's not true. And that's particularly, by the way, true for American Christianity. We do that when we look back at 1800s and 1900s American Christianity, think all the things were better than. I promise you, I don't care what time period of history you look at, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Things might be a little more blatant sometimes and a little more hidden other times. There is nothing new under the sun. You look through this list and you realize the Galatians were struggling with all the same things we were struggling with. Sure, they might look a little different 2,000 years removed, might be different ways of expressing it, but it's the same exact stuff, just in their own form, just different wrapping. Second, I would point out to you that if you ranked in your own mind, even though I asked you not to, if you ranked any of those sins as being more or less sinful than others, would you would you please now recognize how wrong you are for doing that and stop it forever uh, you know i don't I don't really believe that sins are rankable which the word rankable is apparently not a real word I learned from the dictionary anyway, but it is today in, in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus takes murder and hatred and he puts them on the same level he takes adultery and lust and he he puts them on the same exact level but I would you know, almost be willing to bet my life that across this room, if I were to ask you which one of those is worse in any one of those pairings, murder or hatred, which one's worse, you'd probably bet like, murder. You know, like, murder is definitely worse than hatred. Adultery is definitely worse. You see, we instantly do this without even thinking about it, necessarily purposely trying to do it. We start to rank things and, and put them in order. And because we rank these sins, we tend to either excuse ourselves or accuse ourselves or even others based on what sins we're dealing with and where that sin falls within the overall ranking system that works in our mind. So, you know, oh, well, you're struggling with that. Well, I'm only struggling with this. So I'm doing way better than you. Or, you know, Or oh, you're, you're, you're struggling with that. <sighs> I'm really struggling with this thing. I'm way worse than you. We excuse or accuse ourselves or others based on this artificial ranking of sin. And that approach, I would say to you, is inconsistent and unbiblical. Hypocritical, if you want to add a third word to that uh, mix. I get that different sins may have different consequences, but understand that your sin of envy is no better than the vilest adulterer you know. It's no better in God's eyes. Don't forget that. So please stop ranking them third. As we went through that listing and talked through them in just very brief detail, did the, did the Spirit prick your conscience on any of them? And if so, I would guess, if I was a betting man, I would guess that he did so in one of the, these three categories, the sexual sins, the relational sins, or the alcohol-related sins. I was thinking back this week over I don't know, unknown number of conversations I have had with people in the past 10 years, really through my whole life. And I would be willing to bet that of all the conversations I've had where someone's come to me and said, Stacy, I'm really struggling with something, 95% of them, maybe more, would fall into one of those three categories. Uh, it's not scientific, it's just me just thinking back through my own experience and yours could be very different. And look, those things are real, those things are serious, I do not discount them at all, and if you're struggling with them, please understand that I, I'm sympathetic. And if the Spirit is, is pricking your conscience on any of them, then you have a responsibility to confess that thing to God, to repent of it, walk away from it. But my own personal opinion, and this is echoed, I think, by many others as well, is that the reason those three categories tend to come up so often is because that fourth category that I didn't include is actually the one that's sort of behind them all and I'm talking about the worship-related sins, that doesn't make them more sinful or rank them some way after I just told you not to rank them. That's not my point at all. It just explains, I think, why the others can be so hard to deal with. Let's just take sexual sins or alcohol-related sins, for example. You've got someone who's struggling in one of those areas. You know, what's really going on? What's really at the heart of that thing? Well, as you start to, to take that sin and sort of peel back the layers of the onion, what you'll often find is that what someone's really doing there is they're worshiping pleasure, Or escape more than they're worshiping God. There you go. I can I can, you know, almost every time. That's probably gonna be what it is. Maybe not every time, but almost every time. Is is that not a definition of idolatry? I think it is. Or or let's take the other one. Let's take the relational issues, for example. If you're struggling in your marriage, you know, there's issues there between family members, friends, whatever. You again take that sin, you begin peeling back the layers of the onion. And eventually what you're going to find out is the person is, is probably worshiping their own pride, most of all, ahead of God. Again, not every time, but very often. That seems to be the case. Again, isn't that idolatry? It's been said that all of life is worship, and the question is simply who or what. So from the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you go to bed at night, you're worshiping. Just who or what are you worshiping? That's the question you're answering all day long. And I think that when you really begin to to take any sin that you're dealing with and you begin to peel back those layers, you begin to see that the core is this one basic building block, one foundation, and that is idolatry of putting something else, a pleasure, a possession, a pride, a person, whatever it may be, at the center of your life and worshiping that thing above and before God himself. So, So if your conscience is pricked on any of these points, may I suggest to you as you go out today to begin your examination of your heart there, to take whatever it is and start asking why. Why do you struggle with that? What are you really wanting out of it? What, what are you going, you know, like ask those questions, peel those layers and start trying to find out what's at the core that you're worshiping above and before Jesus, whatever that is, confess it, repent of it, and then worship God in place of that through the power of his spirit, all right? So so you got sexual sins, worship sins, relational sins, alcohol sins, and then he says anything else like that, okay? <laughs> I can't address that one because that's too big. Anything else that's along those lines, you can include that as, those as well. All of these things are works of the flesh that are widely and well-known for being sinful. And then notice he ends here with a warning. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as you hear that, especially if your conscience is pricked at all along any of those points, you may read that warning there and instantly become terrified, right? Because you're like, I do those things. And I would just maybe encourage you for a quick moment and say, who in here doesn't? I already made the whole point. Two weeks ago, the whole sermon was basically saying, we all battle. That's the Christian life. Everyone battles. You're going to battle until the day you die. You battle the flesh. All of us will. So is Paul here then saying that none of us will inherit the kingdom of God? Or is he somehow implying that we have to achieve moral perfection in this life in order to truly be saved? What do you do with this warning? Well, I, I think... I think you have to understand the point of what he's trying to get at here in order to understand the warning itself. And it all comes back to the word do. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, my favorite quote from Bill Clinton. It all depends on what the definition of is, is. You remember that quote? Not all of you. Some of you are too young. Uh, it all depends on the definition of the word do here. You see, even in English, the word do is kind of a funny word because it can be used different ways. For example, at the end of the service, you might come up to me and say, Stacy, what did you do this week? And I might say to you, well, we put up our Christmas tree. That's an honest answer to that question, right? right? I gave you something we did. And does that mean I did it all week long? Thankfully, no. I've had Christmases like that, though, right? <laughs> it's an all-week ordeal to get the thing up. This was not the case this year. Like maybe two hours, it wasn't the whole week. Did I lie to you? No, no, no. No, I didn't. In that case, the word do was just, you were just asking me something I did. I just gave you an act or an accomplishment of the week. But if instead you came up to me and you said, Stacey, what do you do? Well, I'm probably going to give you a different answer at that point. I'll probably say, well, I'm a pastor. See, so that's a very different answer. Now I'm giving you an occupation, something that occupies my entire week and has for years, right? I'm, I've, I've completely changed how I have understood the word do now, and I've given you something that's gone over a long period of time. So, so I can say I do both things. Both are accurate. It just depends on the context. Well, guess what? In Greek, there's a similar distinction. The word Paul uses here for do is not the, the question of activity. Like, what's your action? It's not a simple do. There's a word for that. He doesn't use it here. No, the word he uses here refers to a continuity or repetition of action. In other words, he's asking about a lifestyle. He's talking about a practice, something that defines you over a long period of time. So what he's saying here is that those who live their lives in the flesh, those whose manner of life is defined by these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're a believer, a genuine believer in this room this morning, I can say with confidence that will not be true of you. You're like, well, you don't know me. Yeah, I know. But if you're a genuine believer and you have the Spirit of God in you, I I know that won't be true of you. Uh, You you may commit the acts, the the deeds that he lists here, but but you're not living in them. In fact, you're going to be tormented by them if you're a genuine believer. They're going to, they're going to haunt your very soul. You're going to be like Paul in Romans 7. You're like, the good things I want to do, I don't do. The evil things I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See that cry of Paul there in Romans 7? That's one you're going to resonate with. You're going to recognize that cry because it's going to be the cry of your own heart of like, when will this be over? When will it end? When will you deliver me, Lord? So if that's that's the cry of your heart when you commit those acts, and I don't I mean, I can't say for certain because I don't know your hearts. Just take this for what it's worth. But I don't, I don't believe this warning's for you. But if you live in these things, if there's no struggle, no battle, it's just your life, take Paul at his word here, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, all the Sundays for this message to fall on, I'm glad it's today I'm glad it's a Sunday where we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together because it it reminds us of our need for Christ in the midst of this battle. Um, because I recognize how a message like this could cause some of you to become discouraged or even potentially doubt your salvation, you know, I it makes me really sensitive to, to this. Because I understand. I get it. Some of you are in the middle of the battle and, uh, you know, it's been a long time since you fell felt a victory, right? And you're struggling and discouraged and down, and you hear something like this, and you're like, oh, Lord, you know, what am I even a Christian? And Look, there is a place for self-examination, and I'm all for it. I'm all for calling you to it, too. Okay? Examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. But there's a fine line between that and me standing up here and trying to make people doubt, and that certainly hasn't been my case. But I would just say to you, if you're in the midst of a battle with one or more of these things, and you walked in here today and you're discouraged and you feel defeated, you're a believer, let me tell you, don't give up. Don't give up. I don't care how discouraged you become. Don't give up. And don't forget that in the end, the one who has defeated the flesh and your sin has given you his spirit within you. You have the one who's achieved the victory living within you and, and it's never going to be about you becoming strong enough to say no to this or stop that or start this or pull yourself up. No, that's never going to work. You're the problem. You can't fix it. <laughs> that's what we said two weeks ago. You have to die. You have to die so that Jesus can live his life through you. And this isn't done by our own power. This is done by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so as we partake of the, uh, this morning of the bread and the cup, I want you to focus your attention on the indwelling presence of Christ's Spirit within you and the victory that is yours. It is yours through the power of His Spirit. Men, would you please come? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.